Welcome to Breast Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. Lily Shockney has seen breast cancer from two sides, as a patient and as an oncology nurse. And I met with her once again to just sit back and learn. Here we go, beginning with the case presentation. This was a 54-year-old woman who was diagnosed with invasive ductal carcinoma, pathologically staged a stage 1. It was a 1.2 centimeter tumor. Central node was negative, ERPR positive, HER2 new negative. Her oncotype DX score that the medical oncologist opted to do to help evaluate whether or not she would or would not benefit from chemotherapy was a low score of 11. The grade of the tumor was a 2, and she underwent a lumpectomy with sentinel node biopsy based on her low oncotype score and the favorable prognostic factors of ERPR and HER2, it was recommended that no chemotherapy be given. The patient was postmenopausal and was given a prescription to take Aromadex as her hormonal therapy for a five-year period. The primary issue that we dealt with with this particular patient was compliance with taking this medication. I think that patients need a lot of education and oftentimes at the end of treatment, when they've had their surgery, and even for those that have had chemotherapy, and in this case, she also would have had radiation, there's so much time intensity during those therapies. And then at the end, when she feels like she's done, we give her a prescription for hormonal therapy and send her on her way. That can be misinterpreted that this particular therapy for systemic treatment doesn't have that much importance. While she's at home, she's dealing very quickly, oftentimes with side effects from her hormonal therapy in the form of menopausal symptoms that cannot be relieved traditionally with hormone replacement therapy. Her husband's complaining about sexual dysfunction, which is not making him a happy camper. She's got joint pain that she's dealing with and feels like she's 90 years old. So she makes a decision to stop the treatment without informing the medical oncologist. That's what happened with this woman? That's what happened with this woman. And so we weren't aware of that till she came back for her next appointment, which wasn't for six months. And it was at that time that she informed us that she had not been taking her medication for four months, which was obviously way too long of a time. So I realized in talking with her, she's an example of many, that we need to be making sure the patients are adhering to their hormonal therapy. We also need to get into discussions with them to let them know what side effects to anticipate and probably more importantly, give them some solutions up front as to how to relieve those side effects if and when they do come and reiterating the importance of taking this medication, that it isn't something that should be treated lightly, that in fact, this may be a highly effective way, we hope, of preventing her from dealing with recurrence in the future. What specific problems did she have with the anastrozole? Joint pain was her number one complaint. She said that when she got up in the morning, she felt like that she was older than her grandmother had when her grandmother passed. Also vaginal dryness, night sweats, and insomnia, which she wasn't putting together to be menopausal symptoms, ironically enough. And in fact, they are. When she would talk to her friends about what she was going through, her friends say, oh, that's what I have when I went through menopause, but I'm now on thus and so hormone replacement therapy, so I'm feeling fine. And all that did was frustrate this woman in realizing that as a result of her diagnosis of breast cancer, she was not going to be able to take what most other women would be to relieve themselves of menopausal symptoms. But there are other alternatives in that regard. 
You know, I wonder, looking back on this case, if part of the issue might have been the archetype saying, quote, there's a favorable prognosis and her feeling reassured. But I mean, I guess it's important to keep in mind that that, quote, good prognosis is with hormonal therapy. That's a very good point, that there certainly was a lot of emphasis that she was in a good situation without enough emphasis placed on the fact that we are anticipating her doing well, provided she takes hormonal therapy as prescribed. Because initially, I guess the studies were looking at tamoxifen, and now just in the last San Antonio meeting in December, for the first time, we saw the same exact kinds of numbers actually out of the ATAC trial with anastrozole. So... The idea that she has a low risk of recurrence assumes that she's getting hormonal therapy. The low recurrence score patients tend to have high estrogen receptor levels. So I hadn't really thought about that before. I wonder if that happens in practice. I wonder, too, just how common problems with adherence are. Some information that we've taken a look at and that I've actually investigated at Hopkins, as well as reading through research studies that have been published by other cancer centers, noncompliance is as high as 60% within the first year, and it actually gets worse thereafter. When we look at the amount of time that we're providing her for her follow-up appointments is pretty daggone brief. Those appointments are oftentimes 15-minute follow-up appointments. And unless the patient brings up issues, then particularly sexual dysfunction is something that she may not be comfortable talking about with her medical oncologist. She also doesn't want to disappoint the medical oncologist by saying, I have not been taking the medicine as you asked me to take it. Hey, I've got a case for you, actually, now that I think about it. We did a symposium last week at the American Society of Breast Surgeons, and we actually had the surgeons ahead of time submit cases. And one of them was one a woman who was on anastrozole, having lots of problems with vaginal dryness, and the patient was given vagifem. And not only did the vaginal dryness go away, but her vasomotor symptoms also went away. And, you know, we polled the surgeons, and they were all very, very concerned about that patient. I guess the thinking there was that she was getting systemic absorption of the vagifem that might counteract the effect of the anastrozole. Any thoughts? Correct. There is certainly some absorption of this into the bloodstream. We don't really have a good handle as to how much, but even a little bit is probably too much. And it would be better to not look at a hormonal method of relieving these types of symptoms. I try to steer patients towards such products as Astroglide or Replens to use as first line of defense against vaginal dryness. Do most people find that effective? Most women do, yes. Particularly Astroglide, we've had some very good success with. Mm -hmm. Is it helpful to actually utilize it in general, not just with intercourse? Correct. And that's a very good point, is to not just wait until you're planning on a lot of friction, but to actually use it every day, because you want to be replacing what that natural vaginal mucosa is going to be. So just doing it periodically is not going to be sufficient. What about the joint symptoms? That's been a subject of a tremendous amount of discussion with the aromatase inhibitors. How do you approach patients who are starting to have these symptoms? 
One of the things that we do is to take a look at what her vitamin D3 level is in her blood. It's not unusual to find that a breast cancer patient's levels are low. And in those whose levels are low, they usually do complain of a lot more joint pain. So getting their levels up into a normal range will commonly reduce these symptoms. And I think it's a good idea to check it up front even before you write that prescription for the hormonal therapy. I hear a lot of people talking about switching to different AIs, maybe even switching to tamoxifen if they've been on the AI for a while. How effective is that as a strategy? Well, it's done a lot. One of the things that I don't think is clear, though, and I've seen patients that have switched to three different choices in a matter of six months, that we don't know a whole lot about the benefits of making the switch that quickly. We certainly have studies that tell us the benefit of switching at two years or three years, but not literally after, say, four to six weeks. But patients have, in some cases, said, yes, I do feel relief when we have switched them to a different AI. It oftentimes does make me wonder, though, how much of it could be psychological benefit of switching, that she's planning on it being better versus it actually being better looking at it physiologically. And actually, there's another sort of card out on the table now in the last six months. There was a paper that came out out of the ATAC trial, which was published in the Lancet Oncology. I think it's the first study to look at this, but what they found was that the women who had vasomotor symptoms, and not just on tamoxifen, but also the anastrozole, those women had fewer relapses. And you kind of like what you see with, say, using the EGFR inhibitors in lung cancer, they get the rash and they see a better response. The implications are that maybe in terms of patient counseling, you have a woman who's maybe having some mild symptoms or nothing intolerable, you go, well, maybe the drug's going to work better. What do you think about all that? I actually personally do believe that. I think that there is a correlation between the side effects and the fact that it is working. And I have seen some small studies, but I think that the information is probably quite valid. One of the things that was presented at SSO this year was looking at hormonal therapy and something that we have not begun to do nationally, but I'm anticipating it probably happening, is taking a look at the CYP2D6 and seeing what that tells us. Because if a patient is not presenting with very many side effects, she also, based on that particular test, from a metabolism perspective, may not be metabolizing the drug. Yeah, that's a really good point. I guess the idea there is that this is specific to tamoxifen. Yes. Well, it doesn't have anything to do with anastrozole. Correct. But I guess there's a small fraction of women who don't kind of activate the tamoxifen, so they're really not getting an effective drug. They don't get hot flashes, but they also don't get any anti-tumor effect. Correct. I'm finding that, and I know you all, Antonio told me about this project you're all involved with, looking at arthralgias and all this stuff, this whole scenario, but it seems like kind of people feel like CYP2D6 isn't quite ready for prime time. And do you actually use it in your patients? We haven't begun to, but I really would like to see us start. And I also think that it may be interesting to correlate it with the Oncotype DX. Hmm. With patients who have a low score and then subsequently do have recurrence, I think it would be very interesting correlation to see were they or were they not metabolizing the drug if the drug, in fact, was tamoxifen that we had placed them on? Yeah, that's a great point because going back to our discussion, the low oncotype is predicated on getting tamoxifen or (laughs) getting effective hormonal therapy. If you're not activating (laughs) it or metabolizing it, you're not getting it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I actually wanted to ask you about oncotype. It's really interesting to reflect back on this patient because 
54-year-old woman, 1.2 centimeter, no negative tumor. Five years ago, she's getting chemo. Correct. She sure is. And, you know, it's really, I mean, an amazing, you know, we do education in all different tumor types now, and everybody's kind of sort of jealous of breast cancer because of the oncotype. You know, colon cancer, lung cancer, everybody wants something like that. But right now, you really only have it in breast cancer. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's amazing. Though I understand there is research underway right now to be able to bring that for prostate and for colorectal. Exactly. And that's good news that there'll be an additional tool to be able to use. I mean, it's amazing. Here's this woman. I mean, she decided or got off the hormonal therapy, but even did she get put back on it incidentally? Yes. And it did require more than an hour discussion Hmm. in educating her about why this pill is so important. Her comment even was, it's just a pill. Hmm. Interesting. And I provided her an analogy to aspirin and its effect in saving your life during a heart attack, that it's just a pill. And that we shouldn't be underestimating because of the method whereby she takes it does not match up with it being less important, they say, if we were to have given her chemotherapy by IV. You know, one of the things about the oncotype is you have that, which is kind of a biologic measurement. You're looking at estrogen receptor, HER2, proliferation. But then on the other side, you have your sort of anatomic issues, like how big the tumor is, the nodal status. And it seems like we're starting to see a shift towards more emphasis on the biology. So, for example, in your place, I'm assuming if you have even a tumor that's under a centimeter, that has a high recurrence score, a patient's going to get chemo. What about the other end where you get a tumor that's maybe two, even three, three and a half centimeters but node negative. Is that a patient still that you would look at oncotype and maybe utilize that in the decision? It is. And five years ago, that would have been an instant ticket for a whole lot of chemotherapy. And, you know, part of the driver of this is actually patients. They're becoming increasingly savvy. So they're reading up about such tests. They're going online. They're visiting various websites. Even if they open a woman's magazine, they're going to see an ad for an AI in it somewhere. So patients oftentimes will be the one to begin that discussion. And if we're looking at a tumor that does have some degree of size to it, but let's say it's a grade one, we're really going to question the value of chemotherapy in such a patient that usually chemotherapy is not very effective with slow mitotic rate. And then, you know, it also gets into now we're starting to talk about oncotype in patients with node positive tumors. Can you talk about what we know about that? And again, are you all looking at it? And I hear people talking about maybe a microscopic node or an older patient who you really don't want to give chemo. Are you using oncotype in node-positive patients? We're not using it routinely yet at this point, but we have had some select cases, and Micromets is a very good example, where we are considering it a true positive node and therefore want to in essence, give that disease the benefit of the doubt, if you will, and we'll go ahead and run Oncotype. In some cases, it's a really high number. In other cases, it has been low. Certainly for patients that are senior citizens, that are elderly, they may have other comorbid conditions. We're really wondering how well are they going to be able to fare on chemotherapy. If they've got a big tumor, we do really want to take a look at the benefit of chemotherapy and is there true benefit beyond just a 1% to 2%. I guess when they had that first study, I think it was a SWOG study, that they went back and looked at oncotype in patients with node-positive tumors. 
I mean, they did find that even the patients with the low recurrence scores who had no positive tumors still had pretty high recurrence rates. So it wasn't like the no negative situation. But on the other hand, at least in that study, even though their rate of recurrence was high, it didn't get lower with chemo. Right. So if I'm the patient and I'm thinking, why am I going to take chemo if it's not going to help me? Exactly right. Though, you know, when you talk to a patient and they realize that they have a positive node or beyond even micromets, their anxiety is incredibly high because they are very fearful that if a cell traveled on through and is landed in another organ site, it may sit there dormant for who knows how long. And what can they do right now today? Because they've got what I call foxhole religion. They felt that bullet sail over their head, and they're very frightened that there's going to be other bullets if they stick their head up. And I think a lot of people think about cases like this woman where patients are able to avoid chemo because of the oncotype. The people talk about the you know financial consequences and the fact that you're saving the cost of the chemo and other supportive treatments. But on the other hand, there are also cases, as I mentioned before, where maybe a patient five years ago wouldn't have gotten chemo because it's a small negative tumor. They have a high recurrence rate. Theoretically, maybe you're preventing the cost of treating recurrence. That's very true. Not to mention the human impact of avoiding recurrence. Mm -hmm. And not just avoiding it, but in looking at side effects from chemotherapy that not just those that are short-term, but can be long-term with cognitive functioning and such can really take a toll on some patients. When I look at drugs like adriamycin that are cardiotoxic, we really do need to be very respectful of the impact that these drugs can have long-term on our patients. So hopefully, if you can get this woman back on hormonal therapy, she will be able to take it for the next five years. What about the issue of going beyond five years of hormonal therapy? We now have trials that are trying to evaluate that, but we're not going to have answers for a long time. How do you all go about looking at this issue of whether to continue it? So I get over 200 questions into the Johns Hopkins Breast Center website a day. Wow. A third of them are focused on hormonal therapy. And what can I do to extend the length of time that I'm taking this drug? Because I feel confident it is helping me, whether we can prove that or not. She knows that she's currently, to the best of our knowledge, disease-free. And these are women all over the country, with 12% of them outside of the country, asking this question that they want to have a continuation of this type of systemic treatment. I think that we are just on the cusp of being able to make some good decisions based on research that is going to result in women being on hormonal therapy probably for a full decade. Now, those that are battling side effects, we need to do a better job of controlling those side effects because quality of life is going to be hugely impacted. It's one thing to negotiate with your body and your family for five years. But now if you say, well, we're going to keep on with these types of symptoms for perhaps a decade, that can be a much harder thing to sell to the patient as well as to her spouse and to others that may be impacted. Although I'd be curious too, and we've tried to survey physicians to get some numbers on this and kind of you start to see a consistent theme in terms of how many women actually can kind of, I won't say sail through five years, but go through five years without a major problem. You know, we focus on these women who have really these disturbing symptoms. What fraction of patients in your estimation can kind of go right through five years of an AI without a major problem? I would say as far as a major problem is going to result in them saying, I don't want to take this 
medication, 80% of the patients are going to sail on through. It's the 20% that are truly struggling and are saying, is there something you can do about this? I also find it intriguing if you look on various blogs on the internet, the hormone receptor negative patients arguing with the hormone receptor positive patients, that if a hormone receptor positive patient taking hormonal therapy is complaining about side effects, Hmm. then the hormone receptor negative patient will say, you're lucky that you can have side effects because I'm not even a candidate for taking hormonal therapy. I wish I could. And I think, wow, isn't this interesting? You know, it's interesting. When the information started to come out about using endocrine therapy in years five to 10, and initially it was in women who'd had tamoxifen for five years and then got switched to an aromatase inhibitor, a couple people said to me, you know, it's kind of like follicular lymphoma. And I was like, what? You know, in the fact that it has this sort of gradual course and people, you know, relapse and have problems and you're way down the line. And the more I thought about it, the more I start to see a little bit of analogy. It's really amazing. I mean, even there was a publication looking at patients that got five years of tamoxifen. Then the tamoxifen was stopped for two or three years because they were on a study or whatever. And then they had an AI And it actually reduced the recurrence rate, you know, eight or nine years after the diagnosis. Really amazing. One of the things that we're doing is talking to patients more about looking at breast cancer as a chronic disease. Mm -hmm. Right. That it's not just a snapshot in time. To some, that can be alarming because they're saying, oh, my gosh, I don't want to think about that. I have to live with this and with the fear of this for an extraordinarily long length of time. But I actually find it personally, to be a bit comforting that there's something that women can take and that we can keep tabs on this and have a way to continue to provide her some degree of protection. Yeah, I think as healthcare professionals, we're thinking of the data and maybe not how it really hits a patient because I think a lot of patients, the first thought they have, regardless of the stage, I mean, not 1.2 centimeters, but 0.2 centimeters, I'm going to die like soon. Yes. I'm sure you can relate to that personally. I certainly can. I've traveled this road with breast cancer myself twice. I was in my 30s and then again at age 40. And I definitely can relate to the patient. And I think that's one of the strengths that I bring to the bedside is being able to talk to that patient and say, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're worrying about. I've sat where you're sitting. I've been on the other side of the side rail. Well, one other thing that is available to a patient who has an ER-negative tumor is kind of weird to say if they're lucky enough to have it be HER2 positive, but I guess in a way that is a reality, and that kind of gets into your 38-year-old lady. Maybe you can talk about her. Yes. We had a 38-year-old woman who had a 2.3 centimeter invasive ductal carcinoma. She had had an axillary node dissection done. Her sentinel node was positive, had an ax dissection of level 1 and level 2 nodes for which a total of three nodes, including the central node, were positive. She underwent a mastectomy with a tissue expander placed at the same time, and this was followed by ACT, and then her septin for a total of 12 months. She had radiation to her axilla, and then post her septin, treatment, she wanted to undergo a delayed reconstruction. And the particular type of reconstruction 
that we thought would be most beneficial to her was going to be flap reconstruction. We steer patients away from doing implants if they've had radiation, including radiation to the axilla and not just to the chest wall. So the type of reconstruction that we prefer to do is uh, deep flap rather than tram flap because deep takes no abdominal muscles at all. It does require, though, doing microvascular surgery, reanastomosing vessels together. She had had MUGA scans done that showed that there was no evidence of heart problems, despite the fact that she had had two cardiotoxic drugs of Adria as well as Herceptin. And her final reconstruction with deep flap was, however, traditionally, we would have been using the vessel in her chest that also a cardiac surgeon may want to use in the future to do a cabbage. Now, since she did not have what we believe to be any cardiotoxic effect, we couldn't guarantee that there wasn't going to be something happen at a later time because this was very soon after she completed her treatment. She was undergoing her reconstruction. And she had a family history of cardiac problems. Her father had died of a heart attack in his 50s. So rather than having the plastic surgeon do the reconstruction as traditionally as we would have, he instead used a vessel in her axilla to reconnect the blood supply so that that flap would have life and left alone the vessels that were in her chest. That's really interesting. So how did things work out? They worked out very well, and she's very, very pleased with her cosmetic results. She now is a year and a half out from her reconstruction and is doing quite well. She's now on a regimen of seeing us every six months, alternating between the medical oncologist and the surgical oncologist and just seeing the radiation oncologist now annually. What's her life situation, family, work? She has two children that are in their tweens, I guess would be the best way to say it, and is divorced. And does she work? She's a secretary, administrative assistant in a financial office. Did you have any discussions with her about her children and what she said to her children or how she dealt with that? Yes, I did. And that's something that I like to spend some devoted time with patients as to how to communicate to children of all ages, whether they be toddlers, elementary school, middle school age, teenagers, or young adults. Each conversation, depending on those age groups, of course, is different. In this case, she had a son and daughter. And the son was very quiet, not unusual for him to be a bit withdrawn regarding this news. The daughter was very upset. She was 12 and was just beginning to develop breasts herself. So in talking with this patient, I told her that let's first deal with the daughter and to realize that the daughter's first thought is going to be, Mommy, are you going to die? And then the second thought is going to be, Mommy, am I going to get this disease too? And this is a real teaching moment for children, no matter what their age, in watching how well does their mom deal with a life-threatening crisis. I knew I myself, when I was in my 30s, I didn't realize the impact how I was coping with all of this would have on my own daughter, who had just turned 12 when I was diagnosed. And I didn't know it until more than a decade later, when she was interviewed on a radio program regarding a fundraising event that we were having at the Breast Center, and she, who is a volunteer for me, was helping me with it. And I expected in this interview, which was a live interview, I'm driving in my car listening to her talking on the radio, 
I knew they were going to ask her, you know, where's the money going? What is the purpose of the fundraising? Where is it going to be held, the time, et cetera? But then at the end, the reporter said, your mom's had breast cancer twice. Are you worried about getting breast cancer? And boy, if that didn't teach me to be sure to not be behind the wheel when your child is being interviewed live on radio. (laughs) Holy schmoly. And she said, there was a time I worried about it every day. I had no idea of that. And she said, I confided in my girlfriend and would tell her how worried I was. And I would talk to my girlfriend's mom and asked her to promise that she would never tell my mother. And again, I was just so stunned in hearing this. And she said, my mom really showed me her strength through all of this, she said, and she's done it twice. So I sure do think I can beat it at least once. I just found that to be a very profound moment for me to hear how my daughter had weathered this storm when I had to be extremely focused on myself. So I caution patients in saying, don't assume that because your child isn't talking about this, that he or she isn't worrying. Connect up with the school teachers for your kids and make them aware of what is going on. Have a coming out party for your hair and get your kids engaged in that so that your friends and family members will bring you head coverings and maybe hats that are decorated in funny ways that you could only wear in the privacy of your own home and take control. Maybe you want to do a buzz cut. And that on that night that you're having this coming out party for your hair, like a baby shower, but it's for your head instead, that maybe you'll have your 14-year-old son help you with that buzz cut. I think that it's important that we take down barriers that prevent good communication. And also I emphasize to these women, no matter what their age, and to their spouses, if they're in a relationship, that... The worst thing we can do is to lose trust between ourselves and our child. And that if you tell your child you're going to be fine and the doctor has told you you probably won't be, that that really is wrong. That's not the way to go about this, that you need to maintain that trust. And under such circumstances, you need to say, I'm going to do all that is within my power to be here with you as long as I possibly can. I could be hit by a truck tomorrow. I don't know what lies ahead for me, but today I'm doing okay. I wonder really how much the issue of minor children in general, not just in breast cancer and women, but in all cancer patients, plays into the way people make decisions regarding their cancers. I have never had cancer, but when I think about it, I always think about my kids. And I wonder, and I guess there's a little bit of research out there to suggest that a lot of times that is an important part of what people do. Well, it certainly is. The life goals that a patient is choosing to make are usually very much driven around their children if they, in fact, do have children. I think that's perfectly understandable. We brought these individuals into this world. They are part of us, and we have a responsibility to see them through at least to, we hope, adulthood when they are able to be independent. We also don't want to see them upset for any reason. And though we don't have control over what's going on within our own body that's caused us to get some form of cancer, we do want to, in some way, if at all possible, protect any hurt and harm that can come to our children as a result of that diagnosis. 
Now, going back to this woman's treatment, one of the things that's interesting, and I don't know exactly when she, when did she actually get the chemo and trastuzumab? She received that after her mastectomy. But I mean, date-wise, roughly, when oh. do you think that was? So that would have been almost two years ago. The reason I ask is that so much has been happening in the last two or three years about the choice of chemo to go with trastuzumab. And it seems to be a major shift towards trying to move away from anthracyclines. You see stay this, away from the adromycin, yes. Even in her two negative situations, we're seeing people trying to get away from anthracyclines. There's been a lot of discussion about the TCH regimen, docetaxel, carboplatin, and trastuzumab. Others, you know, this is a situation, though, young woman, multiple positive nodes where people still think about anthracyclines. How is that playing out in your patient population? I think if this individual were with us today, there would be a question as to whether she would have gotten Adria or not. What's interesting is, and you bring up an excellent point, is that before... We're always ready to throw the kitchen sink at the patient. And the younger she is, the more so we want to throw the kitchen sink at her. Now we're looking at quality of life and not just long-term survival, but the impact that these medications from side effect perspective could have on her quality of life 10 years from now, 20 years from now. So physicians are stepping back and saying, is it a good idea for her to have that anthracycline? Is it really necessary or can we offer her a different option that can be provided with her septum so that she can still achieve the benefit that we were hoping that she was getting by using the kitchen sink? Even with anthracyclines, we still don't see florid actual heart failure that often. What are some of the symptoms or signs that nurses can be looking for in patients with trastuzumab with chemo, particularly with an anthracycline? One side effect that I think is pretty classic that we don't always realize we need to be associating with a cardiac problem is when a patient says, I felt a little short of breath this past week, or, you know, I was outside playing with my child and I just felt like I was a little bit winded or I usually can climb a set of stairs and this time I got to the top and I had to stop for a moment and catch my breath. That we shouldn't be thinking that it's because spring is here and there's humidity in the air that we need to stop. And the first thing we do need to think about is whether or not she in fact may be presenting with early symptoms of congestive heart failure. What about the issue of the patient who has, we were talking before, your first patient, node negative, HER2 negative. What about node negative, HER2 positive? You know, there we usually aren't going to be using the oncotype. And I've heard a lot of debates about particularly the small tumors under a centimeter, around a centimeter. Do you give trastuzumab? Do you need to give the chemo on top of that? What have you all been doing? We're looking at the KI-67 and really using it to carry some degree of weight into the decision about the use of Herceptin. Patients are more and more, and particularly those that are premenopausal, are actually requesting to go on the drug. They are certainly aware that it may have cardiac toxicity, but the internet information creates a lot of fear regarding being HER2 new positive. So they're frightened enough that they're saying, please give me something. I can't get hormonal therapy. That's not going to be of benefit. So if she has a high KI-67, that's going to be a ticket pretty much for her to have that type of systemic treatment. What about new trials in these patients? I guess there are two major ones. I don't know at the time that she presented whether they were available, but because they've kind of just come out recently, 
One is the so-called Beth study that the NSABP and the CRG is doing, looking at the addition of bevacizumab to chemotrastuzumab. And the other is the ALTO trial, now looking at the other HER2 agent out on the table, lopatinib, either instead of trastuzumab, with it, following it. What are your thoughts about these studies, and are you participating in either one of them? We're at the discussion point right now to participate. I'm enthused that we are finally able to offer patients additional biologic-targeted treatment. It's been, to some degree, depressing that we've had to use poisons, because that's what the chemotherapy drugs, in fact, are, and haven't been able to biologically treat this disease. I also think that it's comforting to a patient, it certainly has been comforting to me, to picture how these drugs work. It's a much friendlier picture than to have to picture the way that the chemotherapy drugs do their job. One of the things that's been interesting in that exact regard has been the evolution of the anti-angiogenic agent bevacizumab, which is being looked at in this adjuvant trial, but is already being used in the metastatic setting. What do you say to patients who are about to begin chemotherapy and bevacizumab and metastatic disease in terms of what the bevacizumab brings to the table in terms of potential benefits or risks? Well, we talked to them about the fact that we aren't looking at this being a home run, that we want to see how far I can get them around the bases. So we don't want it to be viewed as the magic bullet. There certainly is comfort, though, in having them look backwards. So I show them over time what were the drugs that were used in the past and that to embrace this new agent, if you will, so that they can see that this is progress that's been made because of women coming before them and have participated in clinical trials as they are now about to begin that will make a difference also for that next generation. In discussing individuals with metastatic disease, I think one of the hardest things for us to do, and I think that it's something that we need to learn how to do better, not just nationally, but internationally, and that's when is it time to switch to another path? When you look at the length of time, at least here in the U.S., that individuals are on hospice, it's a week or less on average. That is a program that is designed to be at least six months, and yet When you take a look at individuals who have died and talk with their families about how soon from the point of death backwards were they still receiving treatment, it's very common to hear she just got chemotherapy last week and now she's passed away this week. I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think that it's a sign that we have failed or that certainly is not that she has failed. It is a matter that we need to recognize that there are things out of our control and that I don't want to provide her false hope that by continuing to treat her that something magical is going to happen, that we need to ask patients, tell me what you want for quality of life. And to define it as she defines it, not as I would define it or a medical oncologist define it. One of the patients that we're dealing with currently is also someone that I personally know very well. She's on our survivor volunteer team. She's in her early 50s, has been dealing with metastatic disease for five years, had a mastectomy done, and it wasn't until immediately post-op 
when it was discovered that our centered lobe was positive and then subsequently had an axe dissection. So it was discovered post-op when her scans were being done that she had bone mets and that she had quite a bit of bone mets. She was hormone receptor positive, has been on hormonal therapy for four years and was doing great. Matter of fact, she would say to me, I don't even know if people believe me when I tell them that I have metastatic disease. I'm still running in marathons. I'm still biking 30 miles every Wednesday with my biking club. Well, things all changed just about a year ago when her bone pain finally declared itself. And she said, gee, I now feel like someone that does have breast cancer. I haven't felt like that before. And her initial desire was, I want to define my quality of life. I don't want to embark on taking a whole bunch of chemotherapy drugs or even staying on hormonal therapy if I'm not convinced that this is the right thing to do for me. That was a tough discussion to have to sit down and have, particularly when it's a patient that we've known and known well for a long time and someone who has been helping to support other patients who are newly diagnosed, for example, with inflammatory breast cancer that progresses, that she's one of those individuals that has been talking to those patients and providing them one-on-one support. And she said, I don't want to die without my hair. And somebody may think that's really silly. She said, but I want my hair on my head. So I talked to her about that and said, tell me more about why that is so important. I want you here as long as we can have you here. And she said, you know, that's just the wrong thing for me. She said, look at all of the women that I provided support to, and I've seen them die one at a time. And she says, and I have been there with them and supported them, but I've watched them wither away. I don't want to wither. I would rather drop dead running the marathon. I want to feel the wind in my hair in my convertible. And it has taught me a lot. So those are the discussions I've been having lately with our medical oncologist saying the first thing we need to do is to sit down and have the patient define for us what does she want to do regarding measuring quality of life? How does she define it? And we need to respect how she defines it. This particular individual had certain milestones that she wanted to reach that she has reached in her life and is very spiritual, which I think has been a key factor to her accepting her situation. Then her daughter surprised her and said, Mom, I'm going to have a baby. Wow. And she said, everything changed. She said, I had in my mind, if I die in the next six months, nine months, it's okay, because I've achieved closure with myself with my family. I know where I am in this world. She says, then I'm tantalized with my first grandchild. Those damn kids again. Yep. She (laughs) says, now I want to do whatever I've got to do. And it changes how you view quality of life. Are you willing to be without your hair to hold this baby? Absolutely. Is it okay with you if you're throwing up for three days, if you get to hold your grandson for a whole day on the fourth day? Yep, I'm there. And I think, wow, we do have to reassess where are we right now? Where are we in this decision making? And is she and we thinking in the same way? Because it can certainly change from month to month. Or someone may decide that the side effects are just more than what someone can endure, that, you know, chronic pain is a nasty, nasty thing. 
And this particular woman had said to me, she said, I've always been taught through my church upbringing that you are closer to Christ when you were in severe pain. And she said, I'm in severe pain and I'm not feeling close. She said, I'm feeling really upset. And I thought these are things that we need to sit down and discuss and get the Cancer Counseling Center once again involved with her and talking with her spouse as well, because he now sees that things are different and that she, in fact, is going to succumb to this disease. This weekend is the Avon two-day walk in D.C., and this patient's husband is walking in her honor. He's never done this kind of an endeavor before, and that's a pretty long walk. It's 39 miles. She has a rose tattoo on her shoulder that she had done, I think, in her early 20s, long, long ago. And everyone that is walking on our Hopkins team, which is 51 individuals, including her husband being one of those, and our 26 cheerleaders made up of our survivor volunteer team, are wearing a rub-on tattoo of a rose in her honor and taking her around in her convertible from the various pit stops to see her husband as he crosses those milestone markers. And I think how wonderful that the team can rally around her. And she's so enthusiastic about this weekend. She says, it doesn't matter if it rains, if it's hot, if it's cold, it's going to be wonderful. And I thought, I bet she she'll have less bone pain because her endorphins will be just pumping in such a wonderful way for her.